My, my family and I first came to uh, Grace Bible Church about five years ago. It was December of 2012. I was out of pastoral ministry at the time, working up on the hill. We were looking for a place to worship. And after the service, when we got in the car, uh, it was my uh, two youngest sons and I. They were then 14 and 16. My wife had to work that morning. Um, and, and so when we got in the car, I, I asked for their feedback on what they thought of the service. And both of them commented on how cool it was to see so many people of different colors at church, worshiping together of different ethnic backgrounds, uh, right from the moment of the greeting at the front door, um, whether it was uh, John or Chester or both, um, all of us have been warmly greeted by them, and, and that struck them. It hadn't struck me quite the same. I had pastored earlier in Los Angeles for a number of years at a church that was just wildly diverse ethnically, both in um, skin color, if you will, and just native homelands, people from all over the world. Uh, and it was just a, a wonderful experience at that church. And so it, it didn't hit me, but that was, my sons were just really little at that point, and so they didn't really get that experience. What they got was, then the following years, I pastored about an hour and a half or so southwest of here um, at, at a church that during the seven years that I pastored there, I could probably count on one hand the number of people of color who came to the church, and that was not unusual where I was pastoring in the town I was pastoring for churches there. As Dr. King said back in 1960, remains true still sadly in many parts of the country. One of the shameful tragedies of our nation is that 11 o'clock on Sunday morning is one of the most segregated hours in Christian America, and, and sadly enough, that is still true in parts of the country. It is a great joy that Grace Bible Church enjoys and celebrates wonderful ethnic diversity. I think that is a tribute to the godly leadership of Dan and others here and, and just a uh, adherence to the Word of God and a commitment to the truth of God's Word that this is a congregation that welcomes people without distinction as being made in the image of God. Um, I grew up, just a little bit of background on me as, as we approach this topic of ethnic diversity, I grew up in a pretty much all-white suburb outside of New York City in northern New Jersey. I was looking back at census data um, from 1970. I know, you're shocked. How could he possibly have been alive back in 1970? <laughs> but indeed I was, sadly, I think. Um, and my hometown, just over 80,000 people at that time, just over 80,000 people, had, as best as I could count looking through all the tracks in the survey, about 250 African Americans. Now that is three-tenths of one percent. Mind you, there were towns on our border, neighboring towns, that had percentages of African Americans that were anywhere from 25 to 50 percent, so there was very much an unspoken line of race and economics surrounding the city that I grew up in. The topics that we're looking at this month I put under the heading of intentional, trying to think intentionally about these things. We started on the subject of prayer, and how do we see what God's Word says, albeit briefly on one Sunday morning about prayer, and how can we be more intentional about it? How can we be more intentional about being grace-giving people, generous in our giving? And this week, how can we be more intentional in terms of ethnic unity? Again, I, I, don't, I don't come to you, as, as with all of these topics, as some expert who has this all understood, I have made foolish and superficial judgments over the course of my life based on all sorts of wrong criteria and stereotypes. In the town that I grew up in, um, the, the 
ethnic groups that tended to get picked on stemmed back from years before of European immigration where Italians were in one neighborhood and Poles were in another and so the conversations at the middle school lunchroom table included ethnic jokes that mocked people based on, on those categories. And so I don't, I don't stand innocent before you. Uh, I don't stand as somebody who says I've got this all figured out by any stretch. Like most of you, I have been in settings where the thing that seemed to strike me the most was I feel different here. I, I look different or the people around me all seem different. I remember one of the first assignments that I had when I went to college in Philadelphia was uh, for a religion class was going to an African Methodist Episcopal Church and rather than savoring the worship I sat there most of the time thinking wow do I look different from everybody here do I feel sort of out of place as being the white guy here of course it's not just skin color to which we may respond in sinful ways I think I've shared with some of you before that when Robin and I were in our 20s went to missionary candidate school we were in a suburb of Detroit. They sent us to inner city Detroit on a Saturday, and, and our assignment was to go with the leader of this organization, of this inner city ministry, and he took us to local bars that he would go to on Saturday during the day, people that had already um, been at the bar from the opening of it in the morning, um, and, and he went there and just did evangelism. And here he took us to in our 20s, and I had never before felt so out of place in my life as I did in that moment. And it was never more painfully obvious. Everybody, even though they were all white there, looked at us and realized how odd we were feeling there and how out of place we were and how easy it was for us to pass off that message of being very judgmental in our approach in that setting. Pastor Thabiti Anyabwile, many of you have read his stuff or seen video of him. I think I mentioned one of the videos in the sermon outline illustrates it this way. Picture walking into a lunchroom and there's two tables, one with people not like yourself, ethnic others as he calls them, one who are ethnically like you. And immediately our minds at the speed of thought sort of go through a calculation at that point. Like me, therefore probably safe, probably have some benefit for me since they're like me, probably uh, can offer me some commonality and some joy. And so I tend toward that table and just as quickly we calculate the opposite about the other table. Once you turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, we're just going to start here, just one verse that's going to kind of launch us this morning. We'll actually end up spending a fair amount of time back in Genesis, but I just want us to start here to frame our thinking. We talked about 2 Corinthians a little bit last week when we talked about giving from chapter 8. And going back here, just reminding ourselves again that Corinthians is written, 2 Corinthians, at a time when there, are, uh, there is ethnic division that is serious between Jews and Gentiles. There are tremendous economic problems. There is persecution for the church, for believers. And there were sin issues that needed repentance and reconciliation. 2 Corinthians largely affirms again and again that the answer to these, the solution to these, is the gospel of Jesus Christ. The message that Paul continues to preach throughout it, it is the power of the gospel to transform lives. And so in chapter 1 of 2 Corinthians, he's talking about how the, the gospel comforts believers in trials. In chapter 4, it's how the gospel is the power of God to sustain us, even when we feel like life is threatening to crush us. And then in chapter 5, Paul speaks of this Ultimate triumph for believers, our eternal hope in Christ, the encouragement we take from that because we walk by faith 
and not by sight. And that faith points us to the promise of being together as a family of God with our Savior in heaven. That truth, as he's describing it in 2 Corinthians 5, should constrain us, should compel us to be people who not only live out the gospel in our own lives, but who are concerned about proclaiming the gospel to others who need it. And so it shapes our worldview. And so 2 Corinthians 5.16 is just the verse I want to get us started with. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Let me stop there. He starts with, from now on, therefore. So therefore tells us that what he's saying now is arising out of the, the truth of verse 15. The truth prior to that is, because we have been compelled by the gospel, because we have been saved, we now live for Christ. There's now a change in our, our approach to life. We are living for Christ and not for self, is what he said previously. And so then, therefore, in light of that, Living for Christ should transform our view of the world, our, our world view. It, it should change how we look at everything. All of life changes because we are now constrained by Christ, because we've now been saved, and so our worldview is transformed. So it is a salvation that not only gives hope for eternity, but obviously is to affect us today, how we live, how we interact, how we think about other people. And so when he uses that word regard in verse 16, the, the word means how we draw conclusions, how we process things, how when we look at other people, we sort of run through that calculation of what we think about those people and arrive at conclusions and, and make judgments. How we regard people is how we take our experiences and process them into making conclusions and into judgments. And what, excuse me, what it says here is that when he says, no longer according to the flesh, the idea is that without Christ, that process is dominated by worldly, fleshly thinking. We think the way the world does. We regard people based on what is common to the flesh, what is focused on me, what most benefits me, what is generally selfish in outlook, and what has no regard for, for God's view of things. It is a worldly outlook, apart from Christ, we see things through a worldly, secular grid. So I judge books by their covers. I judge people by their appearances apart from Christ. Do you look like me? Do you like things I like? Do you sound like me? Do I feel comfortable around you or afraid? Can I derive some benefit from you? Is there some joy in hanging out with you? All of those sorts of things. And so if you're a married, white, middle-aged guy with kids who happens to like NASCAR and the Orioles, you and I probably have some, some built-in common ground that sort of draws me to you and that makes me want to sort of hang with you a little bit and get to know you better. The, the reality is you and I all have our lists of those categories, and there are hundreds of things in those categories that can also have the potential to make me say, nah, it's not worth my time. I don't see much in common. I don't see much that really draws me to that person. Maybe you listen to some hip-hop. Maybe you're really into Star Wars. Sorry for you if you are. <laughs> you, you think sports are a waste of time. You know, maybe any of those. 
that I say, ah, I'm not there. I'm not with you. If the guiding principle for you and I and how we judge whether or not to commune is the flesh, then any of those and far more superficial things can lead me to think it's not worth it. I don't need to stretch here and try to get to know this person because of the differences. And high on the world's list of these differences is the category of race. For a lot of people, that's at or near the top when they're going to start looking at those differences. The immediate judgment goes based on skin color and whether or not I make that next step in terms of communication. Let me just say something really briefly about terminology before we go on from here. From good theologians to secular atheist scientists, you will find there is widespread agreement that race is not a biological reality, that it is a man-made social construct based on a lot of different factors. As we're going to see later, we are all descended from Adam. We already know that we have a variety of ethnic differences, but race has really become more of a a social construct, if you will, that, that one anthropologist was describing it this way. He says it's assumed to be true mostly because belief in human races is so embedded in our culture. He goes on to explain the fruit of, of that, as, and he's criticizing centuries of teaching about race, and he says, and this is an unbelieving secular anthropologist, as a consequence, we have learned that races are structured in a hierarchical order and that some races are better than others. Even if you are not a racist, your life is affected by that ordered structure. The point is that ordered structure is man-made. And I think that's exactly the kind of thing that we can apply from out of 2 Corinthians 5.16. When you regard others according to the flesh, when your judgment is based on, on a worldly grid of how to look at things, then skin color ascends on that list, and it becomes a point of, of judgment, of determining who's better or lesser than others. So I, I want to take a few minutes to start this. I know you're thinking, haven't you started already? I, I want to take a few minutes and just kind of delve into how, how does the Christian church, how did the Christian church historically, particularly the, the church in America, get to a place where racism was not only accepted but actually propagated in, in a way to defend slavery in, in the 19th century? Um, I, I remember as a, as a young kid going from New Jersey, we would go, uh, we had relatives who lived down here in Virginia, south of, of Charlottesville in a very rural area, and they lived in an old, old house that was um, from the 18th century, and across the street was a, a tiny church, and I was seven or eight years old, and, and you run out of things to do after a while, and, and I would go over to that church just to go see what was inside, and the doors were always unlocked, and I can remember going in there and seeing that the, the pews we're fine. It was normal, older church. And then up in the balcony, there were two sides with, with very sparse wooden benches up in the top and saying, what, what, what's with that? That didn't look very comfortable. Um, didn't seem very seeker-friendly. It's for the slaves. That was where the, the, the slaves were allowed, if they were allowed, to, to go to church. They sat on the wooden benches up in the balcony. And so I just want to take a few minutes to have us think about how did the church... How do they twist scripture to get to that place? Some start as far back as Genesis 4. You can turn to Genesis 9, if you will, because I'm going to skip ahead to there. But some will take it as far back as Genesis 4, where Cain kills Abel. And the, 
description of the punishment for Cain is that he is sort of made an outcast and all of his work will be almost fruitless and he will live a, a life of hard labor, if you will, as a consequence of his sin. And one of the things that Cain says to God in, in this judgment is, somebody else who sees me and knows what I've done is going to kill me. And so God says, I will put a mark on you. I will sort of distinguish you to prevent some vigilante, if you will, from killing you. And the argument was foolishly made centuries ago that the mark on Cain somehow was black skin, that he was transformed at that point. There is nothing in the text to even remotely suggest that, besides the fact that the mark was essentially God's gracious sort of provision of protection for Cain. It was his way of saying, don't hurt him. He's already paying the price that I've judged on him. And so it makes no sense. Far more widespread, though, is the theory that was propagated from out of Genesis chapter 9 in the 18th century by white Americans looking, people who profess to be believers in Jesus Christ, looking for ways to somehow justify slavery. And so when you come to Genesis 9, the setting is after the flood. We know at this time the population is Noah and his wife and his three sons and their wives. The world has been covered in this deluge. The, the deluge has gone away, the ark has settled, Noah and his sons and their families are sort of restarting life at this point. So we have Noah and his three sons. Pick up with me in Genesis 9, verse 20. Noah began to be a man of the soil, and he planted a vineyard. He drank of the wine and became drunk, and lay uncovered in his tent. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. Then Shem and Japheth took a garment, laid it on both their shoulders, and walked backward and covered the nakedness of their father. Their faces were turned backward, and they did not see their father's nakedness. When Noah awoke from his wine and knew what his youngest son had done to him, he said, Cursed be Canaan, remember mentioned earlier, son of Ham, a servant of servants shall he be to his brothers. And then he goes on and he blesses the other two brothers, Shem and Japheth. So this is, let's admittedly, not one of the easiest passages of Scripture to, to fully grasp just from its interpretive point of view. It, it would appear that Ham exceeded clearly the boundaries of a sudden, accidental, parting quick glance and turning away. What, what it appears like that the expectation was that had he glanced by accident, he should have turned away and gone away or found some way to do as his brothers did and preserve his father's modesty in some way and, and certainly not go and talk about it. The, the, the description seems to indicate that it was more than a momentary glance, that he looked upon his father, uh, then did nothing about it except that he went and talked to his brothers about it, perhaps in a, in a mocking sort of way about his father's state and drunkenness. He dishonored his father. The consequences of what Ham did was then this, this curse put on his son Canaan. So let me come back to the curse in just a second. Here's perhaps the, the startling part that sets this up in terms of how this is all treated. There's a book written in 1853 by a guy from New York named Joshua Priest. I'll give you the title. It's free online if you feel like you want to try to understand this sort of thinking. The book is called Slavery as it relates to the Negro or African race examined in the light of circumstances, history, and the Holy Scriptures. 
Priest declares, Joshua Priest, without, without any biblical warrant, that if you go back to Noah's state prior to um, the flood, that he has these three sons, all of whom are born before the flood. And that God, knowing that the flood is coming and that the flood will change the climate of the earth, does something unusual. Shem is the firstborn son. Priest argues, excuse me, priest argues that um, he is of a reddish skin color, probably not unusual from what we would see of Middle Eastern people, um, much like, and he would say, everybody who was ahead of him, Noah and, and all of the, the, the predecessors. Then he argues in his book, Japheth was born with blue eyes and white skin, and Ham was, quote, born black with all the peculiarities of the true woolly-headed Negro man. I tell you that because that is writing that was circulated in the mid-19th century to give to white America an explanation for how did we get here and how do we somehow find justification for where we are in this. His argument is that God miraculously in the womb sends out Shem to look like the typical Middle Eastern at that point, Japheth to look like the typical European white and blue eyes, and Ham to be African-American, if you will, to be black-skinned. If you see nothing in Scripture that justifies that reading, then you are not alone. There is nothing that stands behind that, but that view was propagated as being accurate, a description of how we get to where we are in terms of races. Joshua Priest comes to this conclusion, and this is, I think, truly perverse on the curse that's really on. Ham's son, Canaan, in Genesis 9. He says, the servitude of the race of Ham to the latest era of mankind, meaning the, the servitude of that line right up until the current time, is necessary to the veracity of God himself as by it is fulfilled one of the eldest of the decrees of the scriptures, namely that of Noah, which placed the race as servants under the other races. You see what he's saying? First of all, seeking to justify slavery of blacks is arguing that, well, this, this is the curse of Ham. Without any evidence, his argument goes back to Ham was the first black man because of what he's concluded about what God miraculously did to Ham's skin. And therefore, all of his descendants, all of Ham's descendants, he's arguing, would henceforth be slaves to the other ethnic groups. As if that alone is not bad enough, what he's saying in this passage is the truthfulness of God rests on this interpretation. When he says the veracity of God, he's saying for God to be true, then you have to understand this to be this way. And that is all just a desperate attempt to try to justify something that is evil, to try to somehow fit it into God's will. That point of view that the so-called curse of Ham justified what was called African slavery remained published in books by respected Christian authors all the way to the middle of the 20th century. There are books out around the 1950s that still refer, not to Joshua Priest in per se, but, but still go back to saying that the curse of Ham is the explanation for so-called African slavery. From there, it is not a great leap then to go to Genesis 10, and we won't read it all, but hopefully as you're going through the Bible this year, as you go through your reading, this is one of those chapters that you sort of labor through because it's, it's lineages, it's genealogies, it's who came from whom, and it's all the sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, and it's all of the, the tribes that come as a, a 
consequence of those lines. It is not a stretch if you b believe that, what I've said already about Genesis 9, to then find support in Genesis 10 for dividing all of mankind up along lines of race. If you've now said this is what the sons represented, therefore fit all of these into that racial breakdown. Let me give you three arguments, and there are more, but three that I, I think will help you in terms of refuting that. First of all, the curse in Genesis 9 was not on Ham. It was on Canaan. If you've read any of the Old Testament, that name, Canaan, should probably jump out to you, the Canaanite people. They were neighbors of the Israelites, very much like the Israelites in terms of appearance and everything else, because as a matter of fact, the, the thing we see the Israelites dealing with so often is the lure of the Canaanite culture, the immorality and the idolatry that went on amongst the Canaanites. God is constantly warning the Israelites, and the prophets are constantly warning the Israelites, don't be like the Canaanites. As a matter of fact, you need to wipe them out because they are an immoral, godless plague on the culture around them. And so the Canaanites end up becoming enemies of the Jewish people and luring the Jewish people away from obedience to God. If Ham's sin was an act of moral decadence, which it seems to be against Noah, the generations that descend from Ham, the Canaanites, sink even further into depravity. For Noah to then render a curse that is viable, if you will, as a biblical kind of curse. It truly has to be from God, and it has to be upheld by God. And the reality is, whether Noah knew it as he said it at that moment or not, Noah no doubt didn't understand the, the, the whole picture of how that would look amongst Canaan and his descendants, he was prophetically warning of the debauchery that would flow from the line of Ham. That, that curse is saying that there, there is going to be an ongoing problem, that what Ham did here is just a, a small glimpse into what will come through the line of his son Canaan and what will ultimately lead to God's wrath against the Canaanites and their subjugation to the Israelites. It has nothing to do with race. It has nothing to do with skin color. It, it was a curse focused on a specific group of people who would be neighbors to the Israelites. Skin color had no bearing on it. That idea was largely forced into the text in the 17 and 1800s. So that's one refutation, is just the nature of the curse itself. Second, as, as much smarter guys than I have pointed out, there's nothing in Genesis 10, if you read through this so-called table of nations, there's nothing in Genesis 10 that supports categorizing people by skin color or physical types of any sort in, in Genesis chapter 10. There's nothing that sort of differentiates them in that way. Daniel Hayes, who's written well on this subject, says that even though that there's no roots of racial division here, he says this is not to say that racial groups are not present in Genesis 10, but to note that the criteria for organizing the world into three main groups connected to Ham, Shem, and Japheth does not appear to be primarily racial or even linguistic. He goes on and says, all three genealogies end with nations, perhaps indicating that political and national affiliations are the primary emphasis. Hayes' point is, if you're going to try to take Genesis 10 and sort of make it a table of races, you have got to come with a sinful, worldly point of view to the text and read that into the text, because there is no description there of physical differences or, or skin colors as being responsible for these divisions. And then one last point related to both Genesis 9 and 10. John Piper makes this really well. Ham had 
four sons, three of whom, as you follow through the Genesis 10, um, had descendants who were peoples from northern Africa. So three of Ham's sons become ancestors of peoples from nations in northern Africa. You know who the one son was who was not an ancestor of African peoples? Canaan. Canaan, the very one who is the subject of the curse that is trying to be used to, to justify slavery. He's the one whose people settle there in the Mideast and have nothing to do with northern Africa. Again, just on a purely logical standpoint, proving again how nonsensical it is to try to, to draw some connection. The Canaanites were neighbors to the Israelites, and they were subjected by the Israelites in fulfillment of Genesis 9 as divine punishment for their sin. I, I would encourage you on, on that area for any of that, the books I've mentioned in your outline, Hayes and Piper, are excellent on these things, and I would encourage you to read more there. When the world is viewed through the lens of flesh, when re we regard people according to how they appear, skin color, physical differences, and the desire is to justify sinful violence and prejudice, then that, what we've seen here, that is exactly the outcome. Race, division, and judgment. We, we separate, divide people by how they appear to us, and then we make judgments about them based on that appearance. And, and that leads to these man-made sort of distinctions that produce racism. So at this point, now that you are perhaps thoroughly discouraged and saddened by what we've looked at, let me try to give us some hope and some encouragement with the rest of our time. In the time we have left, I, wanna, I want us to think of what 2 Corinthians 5.16 is urging us to do. We no longer regard people by flesh we are to regard people as God does through Christ. We are to see the world. We are to have a worldview that is based on Christ. Salvation should transform us to think of the world differently. It is only through Christ that we come to see that we are joined together, every single one of us, in creation and in sin and in need of redemption through Jesus Christ. It is only as we come to the truth of seeing people, regarding them that way, that we see people in terms of creation, sin, and need of redemption. Creation, you can turn back to Genesis 1, and you know where I'm going on Genesis 1, and it's the creation of man in Genesis 1, 26. Genesis 1, 26 and 27. God had said, let, actually, yeah, 26, right. Then God said, let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. You see a theme in those verses. We are all created in the image of God. We are all made as people who are able to relate back to our creator, as conscious beings who have a conscience, who can be drawn by that creator, who can understand his existence. We are all made in the, the, the personality, image, likeness of God. We are able to relate to one another as persons. We are different from the rest of creation in that we are all descended from Adam and made in the image of God. 
Genesis 5.1 reiterates this again if you turn a page or so. This is the book of the generations of Adam. When God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. And so God patterns man to be different from all of the rest of creation because he is patterned after God. And so he not only defines Adam here, but is now talking about the generations of Adam and saying that God made man in the likeness of God. The New Testament reinforces this. Paul in Acts 17, verse 26, says, God made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth. The, the emphasis again and again is on our unity in creation, on our single line back to Adam as people who are made in the image of God. As John Piper puts it, Adam, who was created in God's image, is the father of all human beings in all ethnic groups. There is no special class. There is no superior race. There is simply the creation of Adam in the image of God and all descending from him as being made in the likeness of God. We are all joined together in a common ancestry. We all point back to the same place. The rejection of scripture and the adoption of godless views of how mankind came into existence have helped contribute to this notion, this sinful idea of a supreme race. Charles Darwin wrote, at some future period, not very distant as measured by centuries, the civilized races of man will almost certainly exterminate and replace throughout the world the savage races. And Darwin went on to make it very clear that when he talked about civilized races, he was talking about Caucasian. We are all created in the image of God. Amen? Amen? Second, we are joined in sin. We are all sinful beings. Romans 5.12 says, Just as sin came into the world through one man, that being Adam, and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. We can read on in Genesis and see where Adam disobeys God's command. Adam then faces the judgment of God, the curse now because he has fallen into sin. Romans 5 goes on to say in verse 18 that Adam's one trespass led to condemnation for all men. Adam was our representative. Whether we like that idea or not, Adam was our representative before God who had the, the opportunity to choose to obey or disobey God, and Adam sinned. He becomes our representative, and we are all caught up now in his sin. We all then inherit natures that are sinful, that are disposed against God, that are turned against God, and we are hostile to him. That's why then Ephesians 2 describes every person as having been dead in sin, every one of us as having been, at least if you're trusting in Christ, this is a past tense. If you're not trusting in Christ, this is present tense. By nature, children of wrath like the rest of mankind. All human beings of every ethnic background are united before God as sinners, as rebels against him. Romans 3.23, all have sinned. All are guilty. Th that, that's why, sadly, we stand here today more than 150 years since the, the establishment of the 13th Amendment that abolished slavery, and there are still deep divides in this country. There's still discrimination based on the color of one's skin. There's still evil people who believe they belong to some kind of supreme race, and there is still ugly, vile racism. The fall of man, man's sinful nature, what he has inherited and what he 
carries out all of these sins then and every other form of wickedness will continue. Laws and rules, regulations offer help and offer the kinds of protections that God designed government to give. As believers in Jesus Christ, we are called to love justice and mercy and goodness and to be people who are making a difference by how we live and, and influencing our culture for godliness and for good. But we've also got to realize that the ultimate hope to the end of ugly, vile racism is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because we, we are in a fallen, broken, sinful world, and that is at the heart of this. That only hope is found in him, and therefore that comes to that last point. We are united in our need for redemption. You'll see it up on the screen. I'm going to read from Galatians 3, 26 through 28. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. It, it's helpful for us to remember that the division between Jews and non-Jews in the first century and centuries beyond was very real and very violent. That there was, there was, this was not a culture that was somehow immune to having to deal with ethnic division or racism, that it was very real. We saw a glimpse of it in John chapter 4 when we see Jesus talking to the Samaritan woman and his disciples are, are more than a little shocked that he's engaging in conversation with her. For the Jews living in a world by a hostile pagan government, there's this constant tension between sort of pacifying the, Romans, the, the pagan Roman government and staying on their good side while at the same time believing sincerely in their hearts that this was an evil, Gentile, unclean people from whom they needed to keep their distance. The Gentiles, the, the people of Greek culture in that day, equally despised the Jews. We see that in, in throughout historic writing, that, that the exclusivity in belief of the Jews in terms of God, later the exclusivity of Christianity, became a hated item in Greek culture because how can you believe that you somehow cornered the market on this? They despised the Jews for the way they believed. One ancient philosopher described an attack in Alexandria which had the largest Jewish population in its day, just after the time of Christ, an attack that left thousands of Jews dead. It was the Roman government that in AD 70 destroys the temple in Jerusalem because of a, a Jewish uprising, and they, they squash it. That was the first of three Jewish rebellions that led to tremendous bloodshed. There was another slaughter that took place beginning in the year 132 of the Roman government putting down Jews that was approached levels of genocide. And so Galatians is written to churches who understand when he says there is no Jew or Greek, that is a fascinating statement. It is a, a, a statement that is just full of meaning. And what God said in Galatians 3 was not that Jesus would end ethnic divisions, not that Jesus was the cure-all that would change it forevermore so there were no more social classes and everybody was all the same. He wasn't saying that distinctions between male and female would, would end. That's very clear from, from Scripture. All of these things would still be present. The difference is, is that in Christ, we are joined together as one body, as one family. We are united in a way that the world sings kumbaya about and, and tries to emulate and thinks it can do in some way, and it can't in the ultimate sense that you and I experience as believers in Jesus Christ. 
and the union that we have in him. We are united in belonging to him because we have come to the cross and surrendered there on that same plane, all of us as sinners, all of us worthy of death and judgment, all of us in desperate need of salvation from the Messiah who came to the Jewish people and now offers salvation to the world. And at the cross, we all find that same Savior. It's there that we admit our hate and our pride and our prejudice and every sinful attitude that wells up in our heart. And we find forgiveness in Christ. And we find the promise of Revelation 7-9 in which John looks forward and says, I see a vision one day of a multitude so great that it cannot be counted. It is just innumerable, and it is people from every nation. And he goes on to say, people uh, from all tribes and peoples and languages, and they are standing before the throne, and they are glorifying God and the Lamb. They are as people as diverse as can possibly be, and you can't even count them. There's so many of them. That's the hope that we have in Christ. It is as brothers and sisters in Christ that you and I love each other, that you and I reconcile differences with each other, that you and I come to the Lord's table together, that you and I minister side by side together, that you and I become this display to the world of the matchless power of the gospel of Jesus Christ to bring about unity amongst people from every possible different background and culture and social class and, and worldview into a worldview that says, I'm no longer going to look according to the flesh, but as God does through Christ. I thought this week, it, it, I just thought about all these different scenes from my own life and, and try to think through just in terms of application. And, and this sermon has brought me back to a lot of places, a lot of good places. I was thinking back 10 years ago, I was with my daughters in, in Haiti. We did a, a missions trip down there. And a couple of years before that with my son, we went to, to Venezuela. And in both of those instances, there were, I, I will be very honest with you to tell you, there were numerous times when I felt afraid and out of place. When I was watching and looking and thinking, I don't, I don't fit in here. I look so different. This is so different from anything I've ever experienced. And in, in both of those places, had wonderful opportunities to gather with believers and hear them sing and hear them love God and watch them worship and realize that people who are total strangers that I may never see again until eternity, suddenly having a kinship with these folks that was closer than, than unsaved family members. You suddenly, and you've all had that experience, those of you who've been in the military and moved from place to place and you, you end up in some strange place and you suddenly, you come across a fellow brother or sister in Christ and, and all of a sudden it's like, oh, wow, it's like a reunion. You feel at home and you, you have that experience. We need to be intentional with our brothers and sisters in Christ who are ethnically different as we love them, to understand them, to listen to them, to learn from them. This is, I hope, if anything, Stuart and I have talked about this, just sort of the beginning of a conversation to become a people who listen better to other people's backgrounds and experiences and the experiences of their parents and grandparents so we can begin to understand a little bit more about the country that we live in and the people who we love around us and we want to minister to. But let me take it just one step further because 2 Corinthians 5.16 would urge us to not just be intentional in the area of ethnic diversity with brothers and sisters. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. 
To do that, we will need to be prayerfully intentional, to ask God to help us with the racist coworker, with the immigrant neighbor, with the, the woman of a different skin color ahead of us online at the grocery store who's paying with food stamps and who I think I can sort of sum up her life based on her skin color and how she's paying. Those are the moments when scripture would condemn and say, no, we regard no one according to the flesh. If they are brother and sister in Christ, then we have a common bond that we should celebrate. We have a, the, the opportunity to rejoice in our differences. We not just come in as different people, but we celebrate the diversity that we have and, and, and the differences that we experience. But if they are a lost people, regardless of their skin color, it must be our intention to no longer make judgments according to the flesh, to no longer regard people that way. They are humans created in the image of God, enslaved to sin, in need of the redemption of Jesus Christ, and constrained by the love of Christ. That's when we say, God, what, what do we do next? How do I go from here? What do I say? How do I minister from that worldview of the love of Christ constraining us? Let's pray together. Father, I, I want to thank you for Grace Bible Church. I, I thank you, Lord, for the opportunity to to look around this morning and to be grateful for the fact that you have already given us just a little microcosm of, of what it is to see the body of Christ at large working together with people of different skin colors, different languages, different homelands, different social classes. Lord, I thank you that you have brought us together and I am grateful for the work that you are doing in our midst. Father, I think I think it's clear from the New Testament that you would encourage us where, where we are striving to do well, but then you would exhort us to do more. That by your grace working in us, that we would press on to understand better, to listen better, to commune better, to, to be more thoughtful, to, Lord, to embrace the, the, and celebrate the wonderful differences you've put in our midst, but to then be a people who, when we go out from here, do not, by your grace and your spirit's conviction, don't allow ourselves to be regarding according to the flesh. And when we do, Lord, we ask that you would convict us and help us to confess that. Cause us to be a people who would love and regard Lorton and our workplaces and our colleagues, and our neighbors, and the people that we, we rub shoulders with on Metro or wherever it may be, to regard them not according to the flesh, but to look at them as people who we are joined together with in creation, in sin, and in need of redemption. Father, if there's anyone here this morning or listening to this in some way who is not trusting in Jesus Christ as Savior or who is wrestling with past deeds of racism or racist thoughts, Father, I, I pray that this would be the day when they would so find and embrace that you would so flood them with the grace that you pour out through Jesus Christ. Lord, it is, it is clear that there is only the sin of rejecting Christ that leaves lasting condemnation, that all other sins when brought to the cross find forgiveness. And so I pray that this day you might bring those struggling in these areas to, to find a, 
a fresh awareness of your grace and your strength to move forward. Those who are not trusting in Jesus Christ, might you open their eyes to the glory of Christ so that they too would stand side by side and shout glory to God who is on the throne and to the Lamb. In whose name we pray.